Uh, so if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, what we've been doing is walking verse by verse through one of the longest and most important um, sermons in all of the book of Acts, the sermon of Stephen, a man next week we're going to see is going to become the very first Christian martyr. Uh, And to catch up on the story so far, so Stephen is this guy that, that was an ordinary guy, but he was picked out by the disciples because of his faith and wisdom. Uh, And he was appointed to this area of really practical ministry. And and despite the fact that he's in the uh, the soup kitchen and he's making sandwiches for the poor and the needy, God begins using Stephen in incredible ways. Uh, We're told he starts preaching the gospel, that he's doing signs and wonders, that that God just uses this ordinary man to do extraordinary things. Uh, But what we saw is in response to that work of God, this religious crowd, they, they form against him, Uh, And they come and they level four accusations at him. Uh, That firstly, he's preaching against God. Uh, Secondly, he's preaching against Moses, uh, the temple, uh, and the law. That that he's blaspheming all these things the religious hold so dear to their heart. Uh, And look, Stephen's done a pretty good job of defending himself so far, right? Uh, So in the first week we saw, he he walked us through uh, the story of Abraham and the second week, he walked us through the story of Joseph, and he used those stories to show that, hey, God is this faithful God. He was faithful back then, and he's faithful today. That, that Stephen is, is definitely very pro-God. Uh, and then last week, Stephen walked through the story of Moses, and you can't help but read Stephen's account of that story and see that he is definitely pro-Moses as well. So he sort of covered those first two accusations, right? He's not against God and he's not against Moses. Uh, But as you read through the story, we're sort of gonna get to a point tonight where Stephen kind of starts to lose it with the crowd. He kind of gives up on defending himself and uh, I don't know, maybe it's the fact that everyone's holding rocks in their hand at this point or uh, maybe he just sees how hard their hearts are in response to this message, but he just starts getting more and more and more direct with this crowd. And as, as he's looking around, he is not pleased or impressed with what he sees. And what Stephen's gonna do tonight is he's gonna actually turn the tables on this crowd. And he's gonna go, hey, you guys think you know how the law works? You guys think you know the point of this whole temple system? You think you've got it all worked out? Well, you're actually wrong. You've you've had it wrong all along that God's people, the, the Hebrew people have always been a people who worshiped false idols and time and time again, they prayed at false altars And Stephen's turning to this crowd and saying, hey, you guys are doing the same thing today. That's almost like Stephen is, God is using Stephen in this moment to convict this crowd about what they believe about God and how he operates in this world. And I'm gonna be honest with you, that makes my job tonight really, really difficult uh, because I've got to preach through a sermon, I've got to preach through the text and I'm gonna be honest, it's gonna be a little bit confrontational Uh, It's going to be a little bit challenging, a little bit convicting at times, but uh, don't shoot me. I'm just the messenger. It's it's what the book says. Uh, And I promise if you stick through it to the end, we'll we'll end in a good place. So does that sound like a good deal? Awesome. Uh, Okay, as I said, if you've got your Bible with you, Acts chapter 7, kicking off at verse 38. So Stephen turns to the crowd and says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. Okay, so let me just get us back up to scratch with where Stephen's sermon is going through. So the one that he's referencing here is Moses. Uh, And where we left off Moses last week, 
He was just about to turn to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Uh, and so if you've watched The Prince of Egypt or maybe read your Bible, then we know, we know how this is gonna play out, right? Uh, like this is the point in the story where, where God sort of rolls up his sleeve and it's gonna be miracle after miracle after miracle. Uh, that Moses rocks up in Pharaoh's court, he throws down his staff and it turns into a snake and he says, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh's not too impressed with that one, so he says no. And so the next day Moses hits the, the, river of the, uh, the, the water of the river Nile with that same staff and, and the whole thing is turned into blood. But again, Pharaoh isn't super impressed by this and this pattern just repeats itself over and over and over again, that Moses says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to, and then God turns up the dial, just a little bit more and a little bit more each time. Uh, that next, frogs and gnats and flies begin to rise up in vast numbers and they cover the face of Egypt, uh, that all of a sudden livestock are dropping over dead and, and boils are bursting from the faces of the Egyptian and Still Moses says, let my people go, and, and still Pharaoh says, no. Uh, so what happens then is God opens up the, heaven and, the heavens and, and hail starts falling from the sky in, in such incredible amounts that, that crops are absolutely flattened and anything that survives that onslaught is, is eaten by a swarm of locusts that come through, and then it goes dark, as darkness covers all of Egypt for the next three days. So Moses comes back to Pharaoh one last time. It's like, Pharaoh, will you let my people go? And for the last time, Pharaoh turns to Moses and says, no. And so then what happens is the angel of death falls over Egypt and the life of every firstborn son who isn't covered by the perfect spotless, uh, blood of a spotless lamb is forfeit. And at that point, Pharaoh eventually concedes that God is who he says he is and he lets Israel go. And so they, they walk out of Egypt, they, 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 they leave having witnessed the strength and the power and the greatness and the majesty of this God of their salvation. And they cross over the Red Sea and the, the, the sea splits open, so they walk on dry, yeah, dry ground, they get into the wilderness and uh, God brings forth water from a rock and sends bread from heaven that it is just miracle after miracle after miracle for these Hebrew people. And, and that's where we're picking up the story. That's where we're jumping back into things, where we're sitting at the base of Mount Sinai. They've just walked through this amazing series of events. And what I need you to know as we jump into the story tonight is that all of those events, it's not a fairy tale for them. It's not a faraway story. That is all so, so, so fresh in their mind as they stand in a congregation in the wilderness. All right, so verse 38 this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Verse 39, but our fathers refused to obey him and they thrust him aside and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. And they said to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. All right, so if you're watching the movie, this is the part where the, the musical overture changes tone. This is like the dun, dun, dun moment. Uh, like, just think about that. They've seen all these miracles. They've seen God rescue them in such obvious and clear and, and unmistakable ways. 
And yet the first time, things get a little bit difficult. The first time things aren't exactly as they expect, their hearts turn back to Egypt. And what you're supposed to do as an audience hearing this story is ask, how in the world is that possible? How can you see God move in such obvious ways and yet turn away from him immediately? How can God's people commit such atrocious idolatry in the face of all that God has blessed them with? And look, that really is the question that we're gonna focus on in tonight's message, that we're gonna be talking about idolatry and what that looks like. But in order for us to actually answer that question, we have to understand something about the way God has made each and every one of us. See, in the beginning, God creates everything. He, he speaks, he says sky, and then pff, there's the sky. He speaks and he says ocean, and the ocean is formed. That, that he speaks and everything that, that is and will be is brought into existence. And, and all of it, from the, the fish of the sea to the birds of the sky to the animals that walk the face of the ground, all of it is made to worship God that all of creation is made to glorify God. And so when it comes to humanity, when it comes to me and you, when, when God forms Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathes the breath of life into him, well, we are no different. That each and every one of us are made for God. We are made to worship God, to seek him out, to be in relationship with him. That Isaiah 43 says, we are a people whom God formed for himself, that we might declare his praises. That the truth of the matter is our hearts are made to worship God and our lives are made to be filled by him. That Blaise Pascal famously said, I believe there is a God-shaped hole in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the creator. And look, in a perfect world, all of that would be beautiful and amazing. But, but we don't live in a perfect world, do we? <laughs> See, sin enters the picture, and what that means is each and every one of us, by nature and nurture, we have this thing inside of us that sort of turns us away from God. That each and every one of us put our hand up to God and say, no, God, I've got this, I don't need you. And so what that means is that ability for us to have that hole in our hearts filled by God, well, it's actually made difficult. It's obscured by our own brokenness. But at the end of the day, that doesn't change the fundamental way God has made each and every one of us. That we're still made to be worshipers. We're still made to be a people who, who glorify and sing praises to something. We're still made to find our peace and our joy and our hope and our life in God. And so what happens is, in the absence of God in our life, we will praise something. That in the absence of God in our life, we will give our adoration to something. That the reason we commit idolatry, the reason that the Hebrew people could, could praise the things of this world is because any perceived lack from God must be filled by something. And so if we don't allow God to fill that hole in our heart. That means something else will. And see, what has happened for the Israelites here is they've arrived at the base of Mount Sinai, right? And the presence of God literally falls upon the mountain. And Moses sees that and he just heads up straight into it. He walks into the presence of God. And 40 days go past. 
and he doesn't come back down. And, and you've got to remember the Hebrew people at this time, they don't really know God. Sure, that they've heard about how he moved in the past, how he, he worked through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they, they know that. And sure, they've seen him move in power in their own lives, but they don't really have a relationship with him yet, right? They don't know his character, they don't know his love, they, they haven't been given the Bible, they don't have priests, they, they don't really have any way of relating to this God in and of themselves. And so what that means is when Moses steps into that mountain and he doesn't come back, their only way of understanding God, their only way of communicating with God, the only way they have of hearing the voice of God has actually vanished from their life. That as far as the Israelites are concerned, God has stepped back out of the picture and out of their lives. And so that God-sized hole in their hearts remains as big as ever. And so instead of seeking out God on their own, instead of just waiting for Moses to come back down from the mountain, instead of joining Moses on the mountain, because God invited them to do that at first, instead of all of that, their hearts, they turn back to Egypt. Their hearts turn back to what is familiar and what is known to them. See, church, what we need to understand is that regardless of how much we have seen God move in our life, regardless of how many miracles we have experienced or how often like God has spoken to you through a sermon or a worship song or through your time in the Bible, if you have some sort of apparent lack of God in your life, if you have some desire or hope or dream or aspiration that, that God doesn't seem to be filling, if it feels like God has stepped away from your life, then what you will do is attempt to fill that lack with something. You will attempt to fill that hole in your life with the next best thing. And what that means, just like for the Hebrew people, is more often than not, we turn back to what is familiar. We turn back to, to what we've known before that Maurice Robertson says, we were not meant to live without spiritual exhilaration. And the Christian who goes for a long time without experiencing, or without the experience of heartwarming will soon find himself tempted to have his emotions satisfied from earthly things and not from the Spirit of God. The soul is so constructed that it craves fulfillment from things outside itself and it will embrace earthly joys for satisfaction when it cannot reach spiritual ones. When Christ ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, our souls will go in silent search of other lovers. And so that last line, our souls will go in silent search of other lovers. So that's what the Hebrew people do. That their hearts turn back to Egypt the place they've been living for the last 400 years, a, a place full of idols and statues and worship and gods. That the Egyptians had over 1,400 different gods, each with their own little idol, each with their own way of worshiping it, each with their own proper sacrificial system that you're supposed to follow through so you can receive the blessing of God. And so verse 41, they made themselves a calf in those days an idol in the shape of a golden cow. And they offered a sacrifice to that idol and they rejoiced in the work of their hands. That in order to fill that God-sized hole in their lives, they make for themselves an idol. And church, what, what we need to understand is, is we actually do the exact same thing today. 
And look, I don't think there's anyone here tonight that's planning on going away at the end of the service and going home into their basement and worshiping a little golden statue. Uh, if that is you tonight, can we please talk after the service because that's not okay. Uh, but I guarantee that each and every one of you have a tendency in your life to worship something that isn't God. That idolatry isn't just about praying to little statues or singing worship songs to, to fake God. Uh, idolatry is simply when we seek to find anything from the things of this world that can only be found in God. Or when we ascribe to the things of this world things that only belong to God. And that, that we do all the time. And look, if you're actually honest with yourself and you make a comparison to the things in your life that have a tendency to, to make you do that and you compare that to the, the gods of the ancient world, what you will find is our gods haven't really changed that much. That we may have given them new names, we may have gave, created new temples for them, we may have made new ways of worshipping them, but it's still the same old gods. Like, I'll give you a couple examples. So we may not call her Aphrodite anymore, but our culture definitely still worships sex. It's just that instead of sleeping with temple prostitutes to, to worship sex, we, we, uh, we make sacrifices to her on our computers, or on our phones, or in magazines. We, we may not pray that mammon would bless us with wealth and finance, but we'll religiously check our bank accounts, or the performance of our stock portfolios, and We'll willingly make sacrifices of our weekends and our late nights and the time with kids in order to receive mammon's blessing. We may not pray for the blessing of Athena to gain privilege and prestige, but we'll very easily lean on every word of influencers and celebrities who give us their divine guidance and tell us how to achieve ultimate fulfillment in our lives. Churches, it's new names, but it's the same gods. That, that Kyle Eidelman in his book, Gods, of War, which, Gods at War, which is an amazing read, says, the list of our gods is actually longer than theirs. Just because we call them by different names doesn't change what they are. We may not have the God of commerce, the God of agriculture, the God of sex, or the God of hunt, but we do have portfolios, automobiles, adult entertainment, and sports. That if it walks like an idol and it quacks like an idol, well, maybe it's just an idol that there are things in this life that we tend to lean on to find our hope and our peace and our joy and our love and our satisfaction that aren't God. There are things in this world that we ascribe ultimate authority and power to where only God should sit in that place in our life and those things, they are our idols. So what I could do now is spend the next hour going through every possible thing we could be worshipping in this world, uh, every possible thing we could be exalting to an unnatural place in our lives, but I, I think we'd be here for like the rest of the night and we wouldn't even scratch the surface. So, so what I wanna do is I actually wanna go through some diagnosis questions. Questions you can use to just run through in the grid of your life and your heart and, and ask yourself, well, am I, am I leaning towards idolatry in this area of my life? And I would just encourage you, just take this moment seriously. Let the Holy Spirit convict you where he wants to convict you. Because often I've discovered that we can make idols of things without even knowing it, and the sacred cows of our life love to graze in our blind spots. All right, here we go. So question number one, who or what 
do you love the most? See, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So is there anything in your life that gets that sort of affection? Anything in your life that, that you allocate that real estate in your heart that only God deserves? I mean, like, I love my wife, right? Um, I would do anything for her, I would die for her, but, but if I love her more than I love God, what that means is I've made an idol of her. And as amazing and as capable and as awesome as she is, the pressure and the weight of that responsibility, of being God in my life, she is not made to carry that sort of burden. And if I do that, if I put that sort of weight on her, if I, if I, I tend to, to lean on her as an idol, then what will happen is eventually she will fail my idea of perfection and then I will demonize her. So what is it in your life that you love the most? All right, question two, what are you willing to sacrifice for? See, idols will always demand a sacrifice. And whether that be your time or your money or your attention or your relationship with your family or the evenings you should be spending with your kids or your Sundays or your quiet time or your sleep, that idol in your life will demand something. And what's more, the longer you have that idol in your life, the more and more and more it will demand and it will never be enough. That that little G God in your life will demand that you just keep on pouring out your sacrifices to it and it will promise you more and more and more, but it will continue to fail to deliver. So where are you spending your money and your time? Or to put it another way, who gets your first and your best in your life? That Jesus says, for where your treasure is there, your heart will also be, so where are you laying up your treasures? All right, question three. Where is your comfort? So when life, hits, when life gets hard, when the rubber hits the road and you're stressed and you're anxious and, and life just seems really difficult, where do you go for comfort? Is it the fridge? Is it the TV? The bar, the gym, that, that girl at work who always laughs at your jokes? See, the high ground that you seek in the troubles of your life will reveal the geography of your heart. And wherever you go in this life to where you, when you need rescue from the things of this world, well, that thing is your functional savior. And what that means is you've replaced Jesus in your life with that idol because you are seeking its salvation in that pain. Question four, what infuriates you? What infuriates you? I'm just gonna quote Tim Keller on this because he says it better than I ever could. When anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is an idol. And whenever such a thing is threatened, your anger will be absolute. In fact, your anger is actually the way that idol keeps you in its services. Therefore, if you find that your anger and bitterness cannot subside, you may need to ask yourself, what am I defending? What is so important in your life that you cannot live without it? So what is it in your life that if someone tries to take that thing away from you, you just blow up in anger? because there very well may be a root of idolatry in that as well. All right, final question. What do you feel like you can't forgive yourself for? 
Okay, and this one's gonna require a little bit of explanation. So, when you have something in your life, an event or, or a mistake you've made or a scenario of the past and what you say to yourself, I know God forgives me for that, but I can't forgive myself for it. What that may mean is you have failed an idol whose approval you value more highly than God's. So, so when you look back at the story of your life, what are your greatest disappointments? What are the things you know that the blood of Christ has covered you for, that Jesus has died for, and yet the condemnation of that failure still sits over your life? Because maybe, just maybe, there's an idol at the root of that, and that is the one you have failed. All right, anyone feeling convicted yet? <laughs> just me? Um, verse 42. But God turned away, and he gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. All right, I'm gonna be honest with you, this verse this week absolutely just blew me away. Because again, just think about all that the Hebrew people have gone through, right? That the very same God who drew them out of Egypt, the very same God who sent them salvation and rescue, who heard their cries and, and brought them into, unto himself and said, I will call you a people, I will make you a nation, I will be your God, that same God sees them worshiping this calf and he says, Okay, go for it. <laughs> he, he hands them over to worship their idols. And, and see, church, the truth of the matter is that if we have an idol in our life, then, then sometimes that means God will not compete for our attention. And let me, let me be clear, because I don't want to be, uh, this to be taken in the wrong way. God will always woo us onto himself. God will always call us onto himself. He always pursue us that he, he will uh, continually seek out a people that will call, that will be fully devoted to him. But if we choose not to give him our, our attention, if we choose to drown him out by praising the things of this world, by, by letting the voices of this world speak louder than the voice of God in our life, then sometimes God just allows us to do that. And I think the reason he allows us to do that, the reason he allows us to be drawn into idolatry and the worship of false idols is because God actually wants us to make a choice. That in this moment, God is turning to the Hebrew people and saying, okay, choose. Choose between me and Egypt. Choose between me and what is familiar. Choose between me and your idols. In fact, Moses is gonna say some very similar words to that at the end of his uh, time with his people. And in one generation's time, Joshua, who is Moses' successor, will turn to the descendants of this group and he will say, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The church, God actually wants us to choose. And he wants us to choose him. That he turns to each and every one of us and he says, okay, make your choice. Choose between me and money. Choose between me and your career. Choose between me and that relationship. Choose between me and power or success or wealth or fame or family or health or abs or sports or drinks. Choose between me and the things of this world. 
that no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. That we cannot serve both God and the idols of this world. And see, I, I think that's what Stephen is trying to say to this crowd. He's turning to this, this, this religious bunch and he's saying, do you guys not get it? Do you not see how we've been such an unfaithful people that time and time and time again, we have turned away from God and we have chosen the things of this world? That, that he just, he turns to his crowd and he just loses it at this point. That verse 42, he says, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the 40 years of the wilderness or house of Israel? No, you took up the tent of Moloch, you took up the star of your God, Rephan, you took up the images that you made to worship, and so God said to you, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. That Stephen's turning to this group and he's like, you guys, we've chosen wrong again and again and again. That we didn't choose God when we were in the wilderness and 2,000 years later, when he, when he walked, when he took on flesh and dwelt among us, they didn't choose him again. And look, if I'm being honest, I don't think this crowd that's surrounding Stephen actually get it. That they, they don't see the, the, the link he's making. They don't see the, uh, the conviction he's trying to draw out of their hearts. And the, the reason I say that is because Stephen's actually gonna switch approaches a bit here that he's gonna turn away from talking about idols explicitly and he's gonna start talking about the temple system. So in other words, he's switching tacks from idols to altars, from what we worship to where we worship. And really all I think Stephen is doing right now is he's, he's just gonna hone in on the greatest idol of them all. One that ultimately this religious crowd around him had fallen for hook, line and sinker. See, their problem wasn't that they'd made for themselves a golden calf. It wasn't that they were worshiping Moloch or Refen or the God of Egypt. Their problem was they had built an idol to their religion. They were worshiping the God of religion. All right, so verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it, with, uh, brought it in with Joshua and they disposed the nations that God drove up before our fathers. All right, so let me just explain that a little bit. So be, before the uh, Hebrew people had Jerusalem, before they had this massive fancy temple, before they had entered into the promised land at all, when they were still in the wilderness, God turned to them and said, okay, I wanna be your, your God. I wanna dwell with you, I wanna be close to you. And so he gives them really, really specific instructions as to how to build that sort of dwelling that, that God's presence can live in. Uh, and it's called the, the tabernacle. And it, it's not this grand temple like all the other little G gods would have had in those days. It was a tent. A fancy tent, sure, but a tent nonetheless. And if you ever wanna know that the Bible isn't like a fairy tale, go away and read uh, Exodus, 25 to 30, because you get chapter after chapter of really painstaking detail as to what the temple is supposed to look like. 
And the reason it's in the Bible is because they actually made that, temple, uh, that tabernacle and it was a real thing that this wasn't just a made-up story. But, but see, what Stephen is saying here in this moment is, though, is that God never asked for a temple. He asked for a tent. But the religious spirit of the people that he had chosen didn't think the tent was enough. Uh, continuing verse 45, so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked uh, to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. So, so again, uh, David decides it's not appropriate for God to be living in a tent when, when he's living in this, this mansion. And so he, he, desi- he designs and he plans up this massive temple and then it's his son Solomon who eventually gets around to building it. And again, God blesses that and he does dwell in that temple, but he never asked for it to be built for him. He, he was perfectly satisfied living in the tent. In fact, Stephen goes on, verse 48, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophets say, uh, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? See, church, the point of the tabernacle, in fact, the point of the temple, it wasn't to make much of those who made it. It wasn't to make the Jewish people feel good about the place that they worshiped God in, or to somehow make themselves appear more righteous or make God look better because he needs this big, flashy temple. The tabernacle and the temple were supposed to be this place where people could come and encounter the living God. It was supposed to be this place where heaven would overlap with earth. And sure, God allowed that and he created systems around the temple and the sacrificial system, but the point of those was never so that people could work for their own salvation. The point of the sacrificial system and the law was so that people would understand their brokenness. In fact, it was all supposed to point back towards God and ultimately towards the, uh, the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. That in Hosea 6, God says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. But see, what happened is over time, God's people got so fixated on the temple so focused on the sacrifices and the temple system and the rules about when you're allowed to come in and through what gate you're allowed to come in and and how you can leave and the purification you need to do in order to to come into that temple so that you can be holy enough to meet with God that by the time Jesus rocks up, it's almost like they're worshipping the temple itself instead of worshipping the God they're supposed to be serving. And church, if we're not careful, we can do the exact same thing today. See, I think one of the easiest idols for us to worship as Christians is the idol of religion. Because again, idolatry is when we seek to find anything from the things of this world that can only be found in God, or when we ascribe to the things of this world things that only belong to God. And so what we can do if we're not careful is instead of finding salvation in the finished work of Christ, we we can begin to think it is our own right activity that puts us back into right relationship with God. That like somehow our, our Sunday attendance or our tithing record or the fact that we're, we're serving on five different teams somehow makes us better than everyone else. 
that instead of finding personal transformation through the work of the Spirit in our lives, we can begin to get to work ourselves. And we think if we just do enough Bible studies, if we just read enough devotionals or listen to the right podcast, then somehow we'll be able to sanctify ourselves. And instead of ascribing to God or glory and honor, dominion and power, we, begin, we can begin to worry about whether the service runs as smoothly as we'd like. Whether we're playing the right sort of songs that we like to hear, whether the message speaks to us in the way that we wanted to, or whether our favorite pastor is preaching. And look, is, is there anything wrong with having those desires in and of themselves? No. It's okay to have preferences. It, it's good that you, you want to attend church and you want to do all the Bible studies, but, but those things in and of themselves will never give us what only God can give us. That religiosity is when we begin to think our own right activity is more important than a relationship with Christ. When the symbols of our faith become more important than the substance of our faith. When how, why, or when we worship becomes more important than who we are worshiping. And what that can look like practically is we're building a bigger and bigger altar to God, but in reality, we might just be building an altar to a God we have made in our own image. All right, so, so I think all of this is like going through Stephen's mind as he's turning to this crowd. And I, do, I think he's, he's losing it with the crowd at this point. I think he's yelling. I think the religious spirit that is before him is just too much for him to bear. And so in verse 51, he turns to them and he says this really convicting line, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So that it's almost like Stephen is turning to this crowd and he's going, you guys want to kill me, that, that's fine. You want to call me a heretic and a blasphemer? That, that's fine as well. But know from the start, we have been a people who have worshipped false idols and have prayed at false temples. We have made religion our God and works our salvation. And we are still doing the same thing today. And those are the last words that Stephen gets to preach. Because at that point, the crowd has enough they, they don't like the, the, the convicting words he is speaking to them. And as we're going to go see next week, he gets killed for that message. All right, we've got, we got 20 minutes left. So let me try and, and land this in a, in a positive way because <laughs> otherwise that's a way too heavy of a sermon. Uh, so, look, the, the truth of the matter is Stephen's not right, wrong, right? This crowd around him, they, they had resisted the Spirit that the Holy Spirit had literally fallen upon Jerusalem just a couple months earlier, and because they were so focused on their own religion, because they were so focusing on worshiping their, their idol, they, they actually missed out on that encounter. And God did, just like he did with the Israelites, he, he handed them over to the desires of their heart. But you and I, sitting here tonight, we, we have something that group doesn't. See, where they resisted the Spirit, where they turned away from God, where they put their hand up to the Spirit, we actually have the Spirit indwelling us. 
Uh, that if you call Jesus your Lord, if you have given your life over to Him, then, then we know He has given us the Spirit, He has given us the Spirit of God to live inside of us. That Paul writes in, <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians, now the Lord is Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces now behold the glory of, of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. See, one of the reasons Stephen is about to be stoned is because he's saying the temple has been replaced by the living temple of the Spirit. That each and every one of us become that temple. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. We are now the place where heaven overlaps with earth. And see, when that happens, when the Spirit of God falls upon us, it actually gives us freedom from the idols of this world. Because you see, the truth of the matter is idols can never be removed. They can only be replaced. And again, we've got this God-sized hole in our heart and only God can actually fill that. And so whether we're worshiping rebellion or religiosity, whether we're praising an idol or an altar, the only thing that can take us away from false worship is if we put God back in the right place of our hearts. If we let our hearts be captured by a greater affection. See, if you wanna get over greed in your life, then what you need to do is you need to let the Spirit teach you how to be generous. If you wanna get over the idol of lust in your life, then what you need to do is let the Spirit of God teach you how to love. If you wanna get over religiosity, then what you need to do is let the Spirit teach you how to worship in truth. That R.C. Sproul said, loving a holy God is beyond our own power. The only kind of God we can truly love by our own sinful nature is an unholy God, an idol made by our own hands. For unless we are born of the Spirit of God, unless God sheds His holy love in our hearts, unless He stoops in His grace to change our hearts, we will not love Him. For to love a holy God requires grace, grace strong enough to pierce our hardened hearts and awaken our dead souls. That we need the Spirit of God to fall upon us and transform us from the inside out so that we can actually knock over those idols in our life and put God back in the right place of our hearts. And so look, as we finish this off tonight and the band can start coming back up. I don't know what it is in your life that you have a tendency to lean on. I don't know what it is in your life that for that series of questions I asked you, you started to have a bit of conviction about. Because as I know, as I worked through this week, as I, as I wrote those questions, each and every one of them brought up something in me that I didn't really like. Something in my life that I had a tendency to lean on when I was stressed. Something I, I sought in order to get um, a feeling of like self-worth, a feeling of right standing before God. And those are things I had to work through this week with God. And it's a, it's a process and it's a progress, but that is the role of the Spirit in our life. To bring those things to the forefront and to actually give us the power to make a change. And see, it is the beauty of the gospel that we do not have to bow down to false idols anymore. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus went to a cross and he died a sinner's death that we deserved. And He was raised in new life on the third day so the Spirit of God could fall upon us. 
and we could be brought back into relationship with Him. That yet we don't need a temple anymore because we are living temples. That the Spirit indwells us and God can come along and He can fill that hole in our hearts. And so look, whatever that thing is in your life tonight, God wants to, to help remove it. He wants to, to knock over that idol that you have put in your heart and, and He wants to be back in that right place in your heart. And you don't have to do it on your own. You don't have to somehow make that work. That That's why we have the Spirit, that He, he, he gives us the Spirit to knock over those idols and, and put Himself back in that place. So look, in a second, we're gonna respond in worship. And I don't know, I, I just feel like some people here tonight just need to do some business with God. Um, and, and whether you need to come to the front and there'll be a prayer team at the front here, if you wanna have someone pray over that with you, then um, that, that's awesome. Or if you just wanna stay in your seat and just uh, sit through the song and, and just pray and let God work that issue out in your heart, that's fine as well. But don't waste this moment. Don't waste the fact that the Spirit has just convicted you of something by saying, I'll deal with it tomorrow. Or I'll deal with it next Sunday. Or I'll deal with it next time I have the temptation because God wants to be king of your heart right now. Look, if you need to respond, would you respond? But I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna worship our God together. Lord, I I thank you that you have made us to be worshiping people. That the way you have designed us, the way you have created us is that we have this thing in our heart, that this hole that only you can fill. Lord, that you have called us to be a people wholly devoted to you, a people who sing songs of praise to you and worship you with all of our lives. Not not just here on Sunday, but but every day of every week, we are made to worship you. Lord, each and every one of us falls short of that. Each and every one of us have these things in our life that we put up in, in, in your place. And God, they they demand of us more than we can pay. And they reward us less than they promise. So whatever it is in our hearts that that you are convicting of us right now, I just pray that Holy Spirit, you would just come along and you would just come and knock that idol over and you would put yourself back in that place. That God, you would be king over every aspect of our lives. And Lord, if there's people here tonight that are dealing with shame over the things they've allowed themselves to idolize, if there's guilt that is sitting over them, we just break that off right now. Because you promised there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we break off the power of condemnation in our lives. Because the voice of condemnation says you are unfit for use, you you are unworthy of being used. But God says, no, I will make you a living temple. And so right now, if anyone is dealing with shame and condemnation, we break that off. But Lord, I pray tonight that You would just begin to do a work in us. You you would convict us. You would bring us to the point where we say, hey God, I've got this idol in my life and I am sick of worshiping it. And Lord, when we do that, You would knock it over and take over Your rightful place. So Lord, we praise You. We glorify You. We worship you in this place. In your name, amen.